Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and joining us once again on the show is David Taylor, Associate Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary in the States and the producer of a short film on the Psalms with Bono and Eugene Peterson. And it's the Psalms he's here to talk about this time and his book is Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide for Life, published by Nelson Books an imprint of Thomas Nelson in the States. And David joins me now from America. Hi, David. How are you? Brent, greetings from across the many ponds. There are a lot of ponds between us, but thanks to Zoom, it's as though you're in the next room or even in the same room, actually. Now, how did the how did the film about the Psalms come about? Uh, it's actually a long and really fun story. So we probably only have, uh, uh, you know, moments here to share uh, highlights of it. But in October of 2014, I had a dream uh, that I would never imagine myself having. And that was uh, a dream in which I found myself across the table from Bono and Eugene Peterson. And I woke up and I thought to myself, that was a very fun dream. And then I told my wife, wouldn't it be fun if it became real? And she just looked at me and nodded her head. She said, sure, sure, David. <laughs> Well, one thing led to another, and uh, you know, you ask one person, and they ask somebody else, and then you kind of work you up the food chain. And uh, eventually, there was a letter that landed in on Bono's desk, and then nothing came of it for three months. And then I uh, was teaching a course in February of 2015. Uh, I was teaching a theology course, took a break, opened up an email, and saw it was from a very lovely person from Ireland saying yes. And uh, originally, it was going to be a one-day event in Los Angeles on the Psalms with a whole roster of speakers, and the marquee event would be Eugene and Bono. But there was only one day that the two of them could agree to, and it was the day uh, uh, that Eugene eventually found out his son would be having surgery, and he needed to be with his son, and that was the right answer. But unfortunately for me, all these plans fell through. So I thought it was all lost, and then a friend of mine Stephen Purcell said, hey, what if you just did a filmed conversation in Montana at his home? And I said, that sounds amazing. So uh, I again got on the phone with all these Irish people. And uh, one thing led to another. And uh, you two happened to be rehearsing for uh, their tour up in Vancouver. And so Bono was able to take uh, the afternoon of April 19th, 2015, to fly down in his uh, plane to a small town in Lakeside, Montana to uh, have an hour-long conversation with me and uh, and Eugene. It was fantastic. It was so, so good. It'd be wonderful to work with, I would imagine. You know, um, I, and I don't know how to qualify this except to say that I have no experience of Bono. I only have impressions of famous, you know, rock musicians. And uh, he breaks every stereotype that one might have. He was so kind, so present, so hospitable, uh, it was just myself, my wife, Eugene and Jan Peterson, and then a five-person film crew and two of his assistants. And uh, he came in, he greeted everybody, asked everybody by name, uh, for their name. And then when he left three hours later, he, he said farewell to everyone and remembered every single person's name. He came with a gift for Eugene and Jan. He was just, he was very gentle and, uh, and, uh, and, and kind as can be. And what a gift. And what ended up happening, this is just a little bit of a maybe interesting backdrop, but also insight into his personality. We filmed on a Sunday. On a Tuesday, my wife and I flew back to Houston 
And at the airport waiting for our luggage, I opened up my phone and saw an email from somebody that I didn't recognize. And it just happened to be him saying thanks, but he wanted to apologize because he felt like he'd not come fully prepared and wanted to make it up and said, could you do that? And I said, well, I said many things, but eventually I said, yes. And so we found him in New York City a few months later when they were on their tour through New York. And, uh, and, it, and we met for another hour of conversation and he was so well prepared. He had spent an hour that morning reading and praying the Psalms. He spent an hour with his chaplain processing the Psalms and, uh, and, and he came. He brought his A game and he was so excited about the things that he had been reading and thinking about that, that morning. So what a gem of a human. Yes, I've always imagined him like that. If everything I've heard about him, a total pro. Now, he contributes the afterword to this book, doesn't he? Because he loves the Psalms, quite evidently. And he writes, the Psalms see right through us, see right into us. Now, how do the Psalms see right through us and right into us? Well, Athanasius and on down, uh, John Calvin, Luther, Augustine, in any major theologian in the church's history has written about the Psalms and discovered essentially the same thing. And to use John Calvin's language is in reading the Psalms, you discover the anatomy of the human soul. And so everything that human beings have ever loved, longed for, have ever feared, have ever done that was heinous, uh, that done, done that was glorious and good, every aspect uh, or, or Tim Keller calls the Psalms the medicine chest of the heart, because here you have this treasure house of everything that ails uh, the human heart. And so, you know, Bono, I think, discovered that early on in his personal life, but also in his career, that you had this book of the Bible that was not afraid to use very, very colorful, frank language to describe the human condition. So again, it's something the Christians have known for quite some time. I think the sad tragedy is that, well, for the first 1,500 years, the church made good use of the Psalms. Once a modern era came along, it started becoming less of, um, of a primary resource for prayer and worship. And I, said, I think we've lost touch with something that was fundamentally necessary for us and our humanity, our humanity before God especially. What do the Psalms aim to do? Well, um, you know, as, as I, you know, write it in this book, they aim to help us bring our whole humanity to stand honestly before God without any fear, without any need to hide ourselves. Uh, they help us to face one another vulnerably without shame. And I think they help us to encounter life in the world without any of the secrets that would demean and distort our, our humanity. And in this sense, uh, they help us to stand before God uh, open and unafraid, as the, as the title of, of the book says, uh, as a way to counter this, uh, this insidious effect of sin, which is to hide ourselves from God, to hide ourselves from others, to hide ourselves from ourselves, to hide ourselves you know, from creation, and thus warp and distort our very selves. I mean, at another level, what I tell my students is the Psalms teach us to talk to God, uh, something that we don't really come by naturally, even if kind of here and there we do, you know, speak an honest, truthful word to God. But ultimately, because we're human and creaturely and sinful, we need God to show us how to talk to him rather than vice versa. 
Why do we as humans have this impulse to hide? You write about the, the impulse to hide in your book. Well, <laughs> ultimately, tragically, sin, right? Sin, the effect of sin was to cause us to become afraid, afraid of our maker, uh, afraid of ourselves, afraid of others, afraid of the world in which we live. And so we find all sorts of ways to protect ourselves over against, you know, because we experience God, others, ourselves as a threat. And uh, that is, that, that's the pernicious effect of sin and evil in the world. Uh, and it's tragic, right? Because it has this disintegrating effect. Uh, we, we become disintegrated in our own selves, not just in our relationships with the world and with others. Yes, I've got to use the quote from Eugene Peterson, too, which I loved in the book uh, about, because the Psalms are poetry, and, he, and yes. he writes about poetry being intestinal language, which I just, I think is a fabulous way of describing poetry. In what ways are the Psalms intestinal language? Well, as I understand Eugene's take on this, uh, and he's, he always, he loved poetry his whole life. Uh, so he had, he had, he had a, a, a kindred <laughs> relationship to poets and uh, a deep, you know, appreciation for poetry and what poetry makes possible in the world. So I, I think he has two senses here in mind uh, of poetry as intestinal language. On the one hand, um, I, I think it's this sense of visceral, um, it's guttural that uh, the Psalms, as he, he describes it, is written by people who largely find themselves in conditions of trouble, desperate trouble. Um, and so, you know, when you find yourself in that kind of condition and, and there's nothing else to do except cry out, well, those cries come from the gut, right? From the abdominal place, that deep, deep place, you know, below the heart level even. And so kind of the visceral gut bodily um, aspect of it uh, is, I think, what he has in mind, but also poetry in as much as it sort of taps into the musical quality of language uh, in as much as it's a very metaphor image rich kind of language. And so it's accessing the natural world, it's accessing the physical world um, to fund the, the, uh, this figurative way of figuring out the world, I guess you could say it that way, maybe. Yes, I love it. Intestinal language comes from the gut. It's raw. Yes. And that's the right. Psalms. Man, yes. Why do you write why do you write that there's no such thing as a modern individualist in the Psalms? By that I I mean that the way that our modern world frames our idea of reality, that is we're born into a world that assumes certain things about what it means to be an individual person. And that, that idea usually revolves around some notion of self-sufficient, autonomous, you know, generation of our life. That is myself, in myself, my resources internally are what will, you know, determine the good life for me and <laughs> allegedly maybe for you too. And uh, the Psalms, uh, that's completely foreign to the world of the Psalms. Uh, in the world of the Psalms, you come from somewhere, you come from someone, you come from someones, and you, you have a, a nation, a tribe, a people that you are descended from. They define and describe you, uh, not in a sense that narrows down your sense of self, but enlarges your sense of self. And so you're constantly 
uh, laundering your sense of self in relationship to God, to your family, to your people, to the world at large, to creation, right? And I think, again, unfortunately, the modern era as such, Protestants in particular, tend to approach the Psalms with this kind of lens or software program that says, I'm going to read it. If I get something out of it, great. If I don't, well, too bad for that. I'll go find something else that's more interesting or edifying or sanctifying uh, or devotionally, you know, enriching. And the Psalms just, that just it, the Psalmist, you know, would find that very baffling way of thinking. Not that it doesn't honor and cherish and, and, and make a place for persons, right? And, and you know, as I talk about in the book, that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are this double key that unlocks how we read the Psalms. They're, they're two Psalms that have no superscription. There's no, to you know, a Song of David or Korah, or, you, know, uh, you know, to the musicians of this sort and the, the other. Um, they're blink. Um, and the first one is oriented around the concerns of the individual person. And the second around the concerns of the community as a way, as a way to say that these two cohere, persons and community cohere. They don't, they're not collapsed in on one another because we're not talking about a collectivist sense, right? It's, it's a homogenous, you know, unit of humans, uh, nor is it this autonomous individual, you know, it's persons in communion. Rather Trinitarian, I find. <laughs> mm. In what ways does a psalm like 139 encourage us to stand open and unafraid before God? Well, let's see. L- let me let me read it because uh, I don't have it memorized. I yeah, I wish I had I expected more of you to have <laughs> <laughs> memorized. I do try to memorize some of the psalms. I think one of the things that's so fascinating about this psalm, and, and perhaps often gets missed in personal and maybe communal readings of it, is it opens with this language, which is very famous, right? Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down, rise up. It's very. Um, uh, it's 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 a terrifying kind of uh, condition that the psalmist finds because there's there's no hiding right and how many of us <laughs> if we truly allow God to search us uh, without any remainder will we find ourselves uh, wholly comfortable with that kind of searching gaze and then towards the end of the psalm you have this little moment of imprecatory language cursed language which in a lot of lectionary reading assignments uh, that is if you were in an Episcopal or Lutheran or Methodist or Catholic uh, church context or Anglican, and, and it was like Psalm 39, they would skip this part about the wicked and the bloodthirsty and, you know, the, the you know, those who speak maliciously against God. And do I not hate those who hate you? And I loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with a perfect. And that, that's very unnerving, disturbing kind of language. But right after it, the psalmist says, search me and, oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. So it's not this generic sort of pablum, you know, uh, rosy tinted, search me, know me. Isn't that a lovely thing? In fact, it's framed. That language frames the psalms. And you have the, you know, know me in my womb. That's beautiful, right? But you also have sort of this reckoning with how vicious the human heart can be. And in fact, how we ourselves can be vicious in the sense of vice, right? Uh, the, the seven deadly sins uh, uh, find fertile ground in, in the human heart. And so Psalm 39 is, 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 is powerful only if you read it from beginning to end and you cannot skip that imprecatory uh, <laughs> territory because if you do, then you actually don't understand what the Psalms are getting at and enabling us to stand you know, open and unafraid before God. Yes, in what ways is the vengeance language that you're talking about in the Psalms, in what sense is it about God's 
justice? Well, the psalmists understand that in a world where the image of God is marred by sin and violence, where the natural world is defaced by sin and violence, uh, that, that what's at stake is the nature and character of the one who made it, right? You made us, the psalmist said. You made our people. You made this land. You made the heavens and the earth. And see how it is being destroyed uh, or defaced or dehumanized, corroded, corrupted in some way. So if you don't fulfill your promise, right, it's it's, it's not our reputation. It's not our name. Right? It's your name. So you must be the just judge that you say that you are. You must be the God of angel arms. You must be the righteous one who makes it right. And vengeance language, <laughs> as I argue in the book, is uh, language that sits in the overlapping linguistic territory to profane language. And the long and short of it is uh, anthropologists will talk about how every society has an idea of of what is sacred or whole or, you know, what the Old Testament calls shalom, like this place or world where everything is rightly ordered, everything's in the right place, everything is flourishing, right? Outside of that bounded space is what's called the taboo world or the outside of the temple. Profane is from the Latin outside of the temple, you know, space. And so outside is, is sort of chaotic forces, right? You know, that evokes the chaos language of Genesis and even, you know, of Job and throughout the Psalms and profane language uh, as linguists, you know, might, might help us understand is language that is, has, that, that occupies this place of chaos, right? When I hammer my finger instead of a nail, it's like, that's not, that not ought to be right. Or when, when domestic abuse takes place, that ought not to be. When a war is, was waged against a people, an innocent people, that ought not to be. And so the imprecatory language is this, you know, angry language on hyperdrive that is, you know, profane, right? And that's why it's so, it, for so many Christians, it's felt to be so obscene, right? Because you're cursing, you're cussing. Um, and then again, Eugene Peterson has this wonderful phrase that this kind of language helps us to cuss without cussing which is such a funny, you know, but, but, but marvelous way of, of showing us how we need to say these things so that then we don't actually say them in a way that perpetuates violence in the world or, or, or enacts, you know, our revenge fantasies, as, as Miroslav Wolf once put it. So I think that's some of what's going on with vengeance and justice language. How do the Psalms point to the Lord Jesus? <laughs> Wonderfully. Uh, now, Martin Luther and John Calvin had a little bit of a debate amongst themselves. Uh, Martin Luther basically said the Psalms entirely are only speaking Jesus. And John Calvin came along and said, well, hold on a second. It's not just Jesus, right? Jesus does fulfill the Psalms, as Luke 24 tells us. Uh, but it also gives voice to, to you know, David or to these other communities and musicians or to the entire people group. But yes, in the end, Calvin concedes, yes, it does uh, ultimately uh, lead us to Jesus. So you have that uh, uh, verse in Luke 24, 44, which is a marvelous one. I don't know, if, you know how many folks would have heard a sermon on this or maybe heard it read or, or remarked, but I, I venture to say that most people would hear this verse and stop at the first two sort of uh, terms, not the third one, uh, because it's just so rarely 
uh, commented on or, or preached on. So Luke 24, 44 says, everything written about me, Jesus, is speaking uh, in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Right? So of course we would say, yes, Jesus fulfills the Torah. Yes, that, that one we're, we're good with. The prophets, absolutely. We, we got the prophets down. The Psalms, in what way whatsoever does Jesus fulfill the Psalms? Well, uh, Hebrews 2 talks about Jesus uh, as sort of this idea of him being the true prayerer, the true worshiper, the true liturgist. Like he's the one that as a truly human shows us truly how to be before God in prayer. So, you know, by that token, Jesus is the one who is like the true psalmist. Uh, so it's not only that, but as a good faithful Jew uh, in, in first century, you know, Galilee, Nazareth, uh, you know, the, that world, he would have been taught by his parents uh, to read and to pray the Psalms. So his life would have been saturated with the Psalms, which is why throughout his entire ministry, he is continuously summoning the language of the Psalms to make sense of his ministry, to make sense not to himself, but to his hearers, that he is the one who is you know, the true prayer, true worshiper, but also everything else, you know, all the Davidic, you know, kingship kind of language that we find in the Psalms. So from the very beginning, all the way onto the cross, uh, Jesus has uh, the words of the psalmist on his lips. So in a sense, showing us what it means to be truly human before God in prayer, but also showing us how he is the fulfillment of the Psalter and say, in this sense, maybe King David, you know, he is the true David. Uh, in that kind of uh, liturgical, devotional, poetic kind of sense of, of David's calling. We could go on and talk for hours about the Psalms. Uh, it's a, they're a fascinating subject, but I've got to ask you yeah. whether you have a favorite or a couple of favorite Psalms that you can share with us as we, or just before we close. Sure. Uh, I, I would say that the ones that I return to repeatedly are Psalms 4 and 5, which are often nicknamed an evening and morning psalm. To, you know, echoing that language of Genesis, evening and morning, evening and morning. And I really love it. So this idea that at the end of Psalm 4, you have this language of, of entrusting ourselves to God at night as we go into this place of utter vulnerability and sleep. And there you, Lord, you know, you're with me. And then Psalm 5 opens up with, and here I am rising to a new day, uh, this is a fresh morning, and here you are, you know, oh God, you are with me, you're going before me. And I love how comforting and reassuring and, and stabilizing that sense is, right? And, and, I, and I, I find myself, you know, bringing those two Psalms into relationship for me personally, at least with Psalm 63, 8, which has this marvelous, you know, language where, where the psalmist says, I cling to you your right hand upholds me. And again, sort of like the, the both and this, right? Of like, I'm holding on to you for dear life. And lo and behold, you are holding on to me for my dear life, right? So it's not me by myself, you know, making the best and the most or the worst of myself, but you are there holding on to me. And I don't know, you know, I mean, life under COVID has been rather you know, troubling and trying, but I think if you're just a human who is paying attention, <laughs> You should have a very keen sense of a desperate need for, you know, the Lord to be your shepherd. So those would be Psalms yeah, that, that, that resonate with me. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you so much, uh, David Taylor. His book, Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide for Life, published by Nelson Books, an imprint of Thomas Nelson in the States. Now, David, before we finish, where can people find you on the net? And where can people find, can people find copies of this, of the film, the short film on the internet? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so let's see, the film, if you were to Google, uh, Bono and Eugene Peterson Psalms is probably the first thing that will show up. Right. That, that'll be it. The book is on, you know, you can buy it on any books, bookseller. Usually, you know, the, the Amazons will have it on there throughout their global territories. And then myself, I'm I'm on, I'm on Twitter. Um, it's W. David O. Taylor. So the, those names, um, they're all mushed together. And then um, on Instagram, I am. Let's see. What am I? I'm, somebody else had that name. But <laughs> I was a little bit astonished that there was another W. David O. Taylor on planet Earth. There you go. Uh, but it's David Taylor underscore theologian. And then maybe the only other thing I'll say, oh, I have a website, goodness me, w. David, uh, w. David o. Taylor.com. Okay, that's where like other stuff is. Mm-hmm. One last thing I'll mention real quick. My wife, who's a visual artist, and I created a series of resources um, uh, 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 we're calling illustrated prayer cards. So we, we took the chapters, uh, chapter you know, themes, titles from the book, and then she illustrated each of them. And then we turned them into prayer cards with a, a, a verse, a call, it pr- a prayer, and then some questions for discussion because we had so many people, maybe like on the margins of Christian faith or in the margins of the church or just not sure where they were. And they would say to us that they wouldn't read a book, but they might, you know, look at some, some illustrated cards, you know, that'd be like an accessible. And so th- those, you can find those on, on the website. Um, but it, they've been really, really fun to produce, but also a, a, a tremendous encouragement to hear how, how children, you know, have interacted with the images, you know, and help them process their own feelings about all things, you know, not just God, but life as hard as it is for kids to be human these days. So, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. David, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Brent. And thanks to that team. I know that, you know, uh, the world goes round with lots of help, so we appreciate you. Oh, well. we could, oh look, I couldn't have had, I couldn't do this without the people behind me, a brother, the, um, David Sylvester at Liquid Edge Digital, and his creative team. They have just they know they know about all the sorts sorts of stuff I don't know about, and so they've just been fantastic. So there's a bit, another plug for them. Yeah, thank you. Amen. God bless. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.